Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. I've been following your heart search on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been annoying people again with my with my tweet storms. I, a guy and actually a guy in Texas complained that I was quote clogging his feed. Was that me? No, it wasn't you, or okay. unless it was one of your aliases. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I had a good time the other day uh, in the rain, pawing through a junkyard. What are you looking for? A part. <laughs> you don't want to say what it is. Well, no the uh, <laughs> the the part I'm searching for. That's part of the that's part of the fun of following along. I got a lot of angry text messages from various friends saying, "What part are you looking for? What's the matter with you?" Right. Ben Gibbard's dad wrote me an email. <laughs> Saying, you know, he's kind of a junkyard dog himself. He's uh-huh. a little bit of a, he's a little bit of a, uh, not a little bit. He's a total like grease monkey, and it skipped a generation. Like his son doesn't really care about motorized vehicles. So, right. So, um, so Alan is always looking for a looking for a, somebody to go prowl around the motorcycle shops with him. Yeah, and I and I've and I've fulfill that role sometimes but he sent me a, a a message saying you know what's the part let me let me help you find the part let's go look for the part and i was like you know what buddy you're gonna have to find out what the part is the same way everybody else is gonna find out when i post it on instagram are you worried someone's gonna go and get the part is that the pro is that the main concern that you're having that someone will figure out what you want and they'll go and acquire it and then they can sort of extort you in some way or have something on you. You know, the, the extortion thing, you're not far off. Like you can have this part, but you know, maybe just come to the house this weekend and we're having a little barbecue and you can, uh-huh. you can just uh-huh. play, you know, just play some of your favorite songs, 10, 20 songs. You know you what? Can have you're, the part. you're real, you're real close. You're real close. <laughs> it's the, the thing is I would have no trouble just not, accepting the part but the but the the problem is that people's kindness Mm. is its own sort of obligation for for people with my makeup which i have heard described as infj or um (laughs) yeah you know there there are various there are various ways that that my personality type is described and one of the hardest things for me when I was growing up was understand because my mom has it has the same sort of personality type and 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 when someone would come over and say like and hand her a pie for instance and say hi we're your neighbors like here's a pie my mom would immediately feel like this burdensome obligation to perform you know, the rituals, the rites of neighborliness and in just hu- human intercourse. Mm-hmm. And I watched that, you know, I watched her shoulder that burden and it was, you know, it was, this is the thing that it's impossible for people that don't have this personality type to understand. The, the burden is so much greater than whatever small pleasantry is in the pie 
you know, that she doesn't want the pie. She the, right. the, the pie comes attached with all of this, all of this uh, indebtedness. Now, the person giving the pie can't know that they're about to give the pie to, to a to a broken person, right? To somebody with a personality type. That, <laughs> they're just being nice. They're just being nice. And the problem with INFJs, a, it's the it's the least it's the least common personality. And I believe that there's a probably there's an evolutionary need for that type of person because we always need hermits. We need monks. We need people that leave the village and go into the forest. And so a certain small percentage of the population comes with this personality type. And it's just that we are the we are the borderlanders. But there are no more borderlands. We're all forced to live together now in neighborhoods. And as you drive through the neighborhood and you look at the front doors of different places, you cannot tell who lurks behind those doors. Right. And you drive through and you're like, you know, football player, cheerleader, football player, cheerleader, hermit. And they, 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 they all have the same, you know, they all have the same like mailman. Right. So. So as I grew up, I I realized I, I don't have it as bad as my mom. I mean, my mom, it's very hard for her to make friends because so so many people, the way they make friends is just like they bring you a pie. You say thank you. You bring them a pie. They say thank you. Pretty soon you're friends. You're, you're, you've stitched it together with, with a kind of like this pie exchange. Or... Or the other one, the other one is like, oh no, I I don't want you to bring me a pie. I'm just bringing you these pies. I'm just I just love you so much. I just want to give you these pies with no obligation. And then like six months later, that person says, after all the pies I've brought you, you can't, you know, you can't just give my son a job. <laughs> in right. gratitude, you know. Right, right, right. So my uh, so. Uh, my you know my my mom had us a lot of trouble <laughs> negotiating all of those other you know those like subterranean motivations and all of the passive aggressiveness that that actually glues most of human society together and so she just doesn't want a pie if she if she looks out the window and she sees a neighbor coming up the steps with a pie she closes the blinds mm-hmm. turns off the lights and you know stands in the hallway until they stop ringing the doorbell and in my case you know there's um it's a little bit it's a little bit less of that but there were a lot of people right away on the internet who were also grease monkeys a couple of guys that spent a lot of time in junkyards one guy in particular identified from the photos i posted <laughs> what the part i was looking for was he actually correctly identified it really because he is enough of a grease monkey that he looked at the photos and said, hmm, a couple of those driver's compartments that you posted were more or less complete except for one or two missing really? parts. Really? So you – now, was this intentional on your part to give this away or were, was this person simply so astute and no, so tuned in that they figured it out? I was leaving lots of clues. Mm. You know, the thing about the thing about posting a, 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 an Instagram storm like that 
is 99% of the people are just going to breeze through and just be like, oh my God, get back to the pictures of Will Wheaton's puppy right, or whatever it is that they're on Instagram for. <laughs> Nobody's got time, right, to play games with people and to study people's stupid Instagram photos for clues. Right. God, right. You know, we're all so busy. We gotta, we're playing fucking video games. Like, right. This is... That, like that guy in Texas that was like, yeah, <laughs> I unfollow you because you clog feed. <laughs> Fuck you. But I was having fun at the junkyard and I absolutely was, you know, peppering my, um, my, I was, I was framing my photographs so that there were clues. I hoped that someone would do what this person did, which was be even mildly observant and no the first fucking thing about cars it was obvious it was obvious that i was not looking for a tie rod right but this guy you know jumped right on it figured it out figured it out and i was like excellent you know like job well done sir and then within a few hours or maybe the next day he sent me a photograph of a part hmm. which he speculated was the correct part and he was like is this the part he had found it on ebay <laughs> it was you know it was he recognized that it was too expensive but he had found one he just wanted to make sure that this was the part and it in fact it was not it was a oh. it was a variation of the part a version but not the correct one and i said thank you but no that is not the that is not the right part it's it's, it's slightly different you should you know, this, that, and the other, but, but the thing I, and, 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 and I have, uh, I'm not talking about this guy, but in general, the number of people that wrote me and said, what's the part? Can I help you find it? Yeah. I think if I were a good future person, like a good future internet person, I would have crowdsourced this part already. And it would be in the mail. Some some super nice person somewhere would be sending it to me already. And that's how people normally, or that's the expectation of, you know, if you want to use the internet right. But, um, but there's something about it that makes, that, that, that starts to feel like somebody standing on my front porch with a pie. <laughs> and so it's much more fun for me to like post the search but the search itself belongs to me. It's not a thing I'm... The, the, in fact, finding the part is less important than maintaining hegemony over my search and my process and my space. It's hard. It's difficult to, difficult to explain to someone who doesn't share some, some common uh, sensibilities. Well, I think, I think everybody inside does have that feeling that you're describing when that if somebody gives you something that that very, very rarely happens in a way that there isn't even just the very slightest implication that one day that person may come calling again back yes. to you that it may be for, you know, everyone's seen the Godfather, right? So we yeah. all, we all have that. That you know, I'll one day I'll and you know what I the favor I may ask, maybe late at night. It may be late at night. You know what? It seems to it, the, the funny thing is, 
when Don Corleone shows up on that elevator and says, look what they did to my boy. <laughs> that actually seems like a pretty small favor. Yeah. In return for the undertaker coming to him on his daughter's wedding day. Right. And asking for some violence. Like all that Don is asking is that this guy do his job a little bit after hours. That seemed like a small, <laughs> that seemed like a small thing. I was thinking yeah. the first time I saw the Godfather that when the Don called in this favor, it's not a big favor. <laughs> you're right. It's re- I never right? thought about it like that. Yeah. But it's I, like if you're if if you like make pizzas for a living and it's like, listen, I know you went home already, but yeah. I'm hungry now. Could you make me a pizza? Yeah, I'm the Don and I fucking <laughs> killed a guy for you. And now right, uh, right. I want you to do your job after hours. That's not, you know, and like do a good job. Right. Because I don't want his mother to see him this way. Right. It's like, right. Okay. I never thought of it like that. Seems, seems like, you know, I mean, seriously, what? The first time I saw that movie, I was like, oh, this guy is going to be sorry he agreed to this. Right. If that's all the mafia wanted, maybe they wouldn't be so bad to do business. They might just call you late once. Right. No. He I got off lucky, gonna, didn't he? You know, the thing is in Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah. Goodfellas, when the guy comes, when the guy comes to the, to the Don and says, hey, I want you to go in on my restaurant with me because... You know, because these uh, these goombas keep coming in and and uh, and eating without paying. They never pay their tabs. Joe Pesci never pays his tabs. Right. I want you to come in on the restaurant with me. And the Don's like, really? Are you serious about this? And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, be an investor or whatever. And he's right. thinking he's going to be protected. And then immediately, those guys are just running every. Oh, kind it becomes of scam. a front for everything. And then the then the the business goes to shit, and then they they burn it down. You bust like a that, joint out, you light a match. That's right. That's what <laughs> I expected was going to happen to the Undertaker, even though I saw The Godfather a long time before Goodfellas was even thing. But I'm expected like, oh, yeah, this is, you're, you're going to be you're going to regret this. But he but he that seemed easy. He sewed he sewed sewed Sonny up, and and then the thing is, thing about being an Undertaker is you do a good job as far as anybody can tell, and then they bury the evidence, right? So even if you did a shitty job, yeah, as long as you like put some pancake, you know, nobody's going to come to you and say like, you know what? He kind of looks like shit today. Like, yeah, he's dead, right? So you, you do a pretty good job, but it's not like it has to last. It's not like it's a, it's not a, you're not, it's not a mummy. It's, you just have like, what, six hours, eight hours? That, that the body's on display. Yeah. And then in a hole. So seems to me like that guy got off easy. But I agree that everybody recognizes this obligation, but I think there are a lot of people that actually like those obligations. They, they enjoy those because those are the threads that bind us. And so they see the pie. They recognize the pie represents a debt that they have to repay. Right. But they're excited about that. It, you know, it's yeah. a gesture of friendliness and and community. And they want to be, a, you know, they like being liked. They want to be a part of it. Uh, it's, it's the, I think it's, it's a less usual response to be like, oh my God, now I got to bake a pie. Although that's, that is somewhat normal. But then as you, as you head out on that spectrum and you get to where I am, which like my place on that spectrum is no pie, no matter how good is worth the obligation. 
However, I will accept a pie as a gesture of human normalness. <laughs> and, I, and the pie will not turn to ashes in my mouth. I will enjoy the pie, and I will <laughs> repay the pie. I will do this dance with you, other humans. But, but I am not fooled for a moment. So when, wait a minute, when does it become, you're talking about a pie. Yeah. And that, there's a lot that goes into that. What if you meet someone who's a friend of yours, colleague, friend, whatever, and you're, and they're like, Hey, you know, let me, let me buy you a drink or you know what? Let me get your sandwich today. That's a lot less work. Usually buying someone a beer, buying someone a drink. Than making a whole pie. Is that something you would be more willing to accept, more willing to say, sure, yeah, go, yeah, thank you, thanks for lunch today, or thanks for a beer, or whatever? Or does that carry the same kind of weight with it? Hmm. No, buying somebody's lunch is a, um, buying somebody's lunch, I believe, should be a commonplace gesture, mm -hmm. which, really carries very little obligation. With my friends, we have reached that stage in adulthood where we're not quite at the stage where we're fighting over who pays the check. Mm -hmm. Everybody's more than willing to let someone else grab it. But there is an expectation when we finish lunch that someone, we're not going to sit we're grown-ups now. We're not going to sit and all put in eleven dollars, yeah, right, or or twenty one fifty. Like somebody's going to grab it, yeah. And there's a sense that it, there's a sense whose turn it is, and the guys that are a little flusher than some of the other guys, they pick up more than their share, yeah. And everybody knows it, but in general, it goes around and everybody grabs a bill. When it, you know, when it's time and that's just like, come on, that's, that, that's, that feels good. That feels great to do. No, I'm talking about a pie from a stranger, <laughs> right? <clears throat> the, 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 the part, the car part being offered on Twitter by someone in a different town is very different than grabbing lunch for a pal. Yeah. And the, and the doorbell ringing from the neighbor, right? I mean, <clears throat> I accept the pie all the way out on the <laughs> spectrum where my mom is, where she will not answer the door. If she smells pie, she goes, into, she goes down into her basement bomb shelter and turns <laughs> off the lights. And then there are people that are so afraid of the pie that they can't even live in the town, right? Or they... Or they put newspapers up on their windows or, you know, or, the, or a sign on their door that says day sleeper or whatever, the, whatever strategies people use to avoid the, that, that kind of um, stitching together of yeah. people with no commonality the, other than that they're in the same place at the same time. So I, there are so many opportunities on the Internet for me to make. Uh, to make a closer world with people and to say, hello, 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 send me your pies. So many of my friends are, are, are pretty good at it, right? I mean, John Scalzi is pretty good at 
at saying at hello, like give me your pies. Amanda Palmer has got <laughs> she has to rent a, a, a an airplane hanger to hold the pies from pe- that people are sending her, and she's out there every day soliciting more pie. But for me, <laughs> I just feel like it gives me greater pleasure to know that you are in your town eating that pie and thinking of me, but you eat your pie, I'll eat mine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you go to your junkyard, <laughs> I'll go to mine. No, I mean, I can totally understand that, but I think for people who are, who really do enjoy the giving and the preparation of a pie and, or going to the trouble to do something for someone, especially without being asked that for them, there, there are a group of these people, I think who don't mind at all doing this. And for them, it's almost like you're kind of denying them yes, the pleasure of yes. doing something that they would that like to do. Exactly right. <laughs> this is the problem. The villagers love to be villagers. Yeah. And the mountain man, the, 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 the curmudgeon who lives on the edge of the village is in some ways an insult to them. Yeah. Just by his very existence, an insult to the village. The person who lives outside the village insults the village by just by his very nature. And that is one of the great human problems to solve. And the thing is that the person on the outside of the village often does not have all the self-awareness in the world. Mm-hmm. The person on the outside of the village, it's, it's, it's somewhat rare for them to, to recognize, um, to recognize themselves in that story. But the people within the village definitely do not have a ton of self-awareness. And what ends up happening is that both people feel, I mean, the, the, the villagers have the advantage of feeling like they're normal and what they're doing is normal and good. And so the outsider is abnormal and therefore bad. From the outsider's perspective, he recognizes that he or she, they recognize that they are um, outside. But the villagers are so foreign to them that that's where you get the whole, that, that whole mentality that like, most people suck <laughs> the whole, the the idea that normal is bad the right, alternative right. mentality that normal is bad and in fact it's just it's all it's all on a bell curve of people being people and you just have to figure out which one you are where you are and what your needs are mm-hmm. and then be comfortable and good with it like i am super super comfortable with the fact that I am not exploiting the world very well. Right? I, I mean, I, I could have, my mailbox could be full. I could open a store where I'm just selling this one part that I'm looking for because I marshal the internet and all my internet friends to send me every single extant part from a 70s Chevy. <laughs> right in the world and they flood my, you know, and I'd just be like out there with a Kickstarter. Come on, we're going to 
corner the market. <laughs> and I'm not doing that. And I'm comfortable with that. I'm happy with the fact that I'm not winning. You know, I'm not like ruling because, because the cost is too great for me. And the, the intangible cost is too great for that kind of engagement. That's one of the things I feel like may, that I'm wrestling with trying to, trying to think about my recent political career. And like there were some aspects of being a politician that I was just ill suited for at a, at a, a fundamental level of desiring human contact and wanting to stitch together a, a, a quilt of indebtedness that ends up being, you know, well, the, the, the coat of arms of a politician mm -hmm. to be a great politician. You have, right. You have to have that network of people who owe you things and you owe them things. And yeah, you know, 10,000 people that you are cataloging a debt right. to, or, to or from. Right. And, um, you know, and that all makes me very uncomfortable because, because it, it um, assaults my autonomy. I mean, you don't seem like somebody who asks other people to do things on a regular basis. Like, you don't seem like the kind of person who would, if you were out of sugar, would you go next door to your neighbor and say, hey, you know, could I borrow some sugar because I'm out, but I really want to finish making this, you know, this dessert that I'm working on, I'm making rock candy and I need more sugar, you know, or whatever. Would you do it or would you just say, oh man, I'm out of sugar. I guess I can't finish. Guess I'm done. Got to go to the store or no, no rock candy. Or throw it in the garbage. As, yeah. as I, as I look out my kitchen window and watch my neighbor shouldering 50 pound bags of sugar right. <laughs> into his, into his, uh, his toffee making right. operation. And I'm like, I would rather die. I would rather right. eat sugarless candy than ask for a cup of sugar. I mean, is that how you, is it that that extreme to you? Uh, probably my nature would dictate that. Yeah, it was that extreme. But mm. over the co course of um twenty years of being a musician, mm -hmm. I had to. I had to find a way to collaborate with people. I was asking people for a lot, in fact, because when you are, when you have a rock band, um, the people that are playing in your band, I mean, for a, for a long time in the early years, I operated my band philosophically on the, presumption that it was its own reward for people you are you are a musician you want to play rock music and travel the world my band is offering you that opportunity it is not a thing where you know there's no indebtedness between us you are here voluntarily as a free person i am here and we are traveling together side by side and i'm paying you and like we have a we have a business relationship but there's but there's no you know it's very very uncomfortable with the gratitude of like thank you so much for playing in my band right 
um, I know that it's a lot of hard work and I know it's tough on you, but like, I'm so grateful to you for being my piano player. That was exceptionally hard for me just because of all the, the tendrils of like, uh, well, uh, of insincerity too, you know, that there's a, there's so much of that kind of talk that's insincere. And I, and I would rather not thank someone or be thanked by somebody than to exchange insincere thank yous. Right. But the problem is that over time you realize, particularly when you've been in a band with guys for a long time, like, oh my God, we're all making sacrifices. This is incredibly hard to do, hard on all of us. And really, the lion's share of the glory accrues to me. I'm the star. And so I'm being paid in intangible ways that money can never offset. And even if that glory isn't what some of the musicians are, are motivated by, they, are, they always are somewhat. Nobody gets to, nobody's a rock musician who doesn't want glory. But the the obligation that you, you feel to to your friends, to people that you've been with for a long time, and and the and the desire to collaborate and really make a third thing that's bigger than anything that you could do by yourself, it forced me to ask my neighbor for sugar in order to to make a cake. Mm-hmm. Um And learn to do it with, learn to do it gracefully and learn to do it um, full of joy, even. The, the problem wasn't that. It was that there were, and this is a, you know, this, this again kind of played into the political thing that the fans that started out with the band the earliest fans, the, the people that were there on the first tour, the ones that came to the shows when there were only 20 people there and the ones that posted on the message board early on and, and created a fan community with other early adopters. Those fans also felt like they had made a big investment in my band and at some point along the way, some of them started to feel resentful that I, what I didn't have more gratitude to them, that I wasn't responsive to them All right. on the internet, that I didn't reply to their emails fast enough or play their house parties or in in a way like i didn't love them enough by their you know whatever their expectation was and i and i watched a lot of indie musicians from my era that just poured affection on their fans and just doted on them and up into the middle of the night replying to their emails about their about their breakups and and um you know, and when they would come to town, they would just 
they'd spend three hours um, cultivating their relationships with much, much younger people than, you know, like uh, 40-year-old musicians cultivating these friendships with 21-year-olds. And, you know, and it all felt, it all felt a little bit, aside, aside from how, whether it was creepy or whether it was cynical or whatever, it just wasn't my, um, I wasn't comfortable there. You know, I felt like you are fans of the music I'm making and you have created a fan community around that. And I appreciate it and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I would never join that fan community myself. <laughs> I have never joined a fan community like that myself, and I don't know what to do in that kind of emotional space. And so I am, and, and the last thing I'm going to do is join my own fan community. You know, like I, I'm not, I'm not being aloof as a way of trying to, you know, create a rock star mystique i'm being aloof because i am truly aloof from this yeah like i don't under i don't share that emotional nature and i don't um i don't know how to respond to it and so so there's a there is a group of people who were very early adopters of the long winters and passionate fans of the band in the early years who now are resentful because bad. of because like they they now they've gone from being a supporter a fan a listener and now they actually have like a an an angry feeling toward it and probably can't listen to the music anymore right right and any Be- success you might now get <laughs> is after you've perhaps sold out or you're not the same or I mean, I, you got old or whatever I don't even know if it, if it extends that far, but the anger is all about what I didn't do. Right. Right. I never touched anybody wrong or, um, stole money from anybody. Uh-huh. Or, I mean, and I have, I have, I have a lot of rock musician friends and, and a couple in particular who are my age, who in fact, uh, really exploited their young fans and did take, take from them and did gross things and took their, you know, took advantage of them over and over and over again. And there's, you know, there are some raw feelings toward those people, but, but not, but a lot of those feelings are, you know, the, the, the fans enjoyed it, not enjoyed, but like they, 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 the, that kind of, like being stolen from being uh, having having a rock star stay in your house and then in the morning your lamp is gone <laughs> they you know they were like oh well that's just you know whoo you know but you know the greater crime in some cases was that i wouldn't stay at their house right um if i'd stayed at their house and stolen their lamp it would it maybe would have been better but so so there 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 there's some resentment toward me about about what I didn't do and um and mostly what I didn't do was reciprocate affection or reciprocate unconditional or rather 
conditional love, you know, reciprocate the, that emotional connection. Right. Uh, and, and again, it's to someone, to someone listening who doesn't have, um, who doesn't have my emotional nature, my kind of emotional nature. It all sounds, uh, so simple. Like what's the fucking big deal? Why don't you just, you know, those people were just being nice. What's your problem? And that's kind of the, you know, that's the response I've been getting my whole life. And people that do share my emotional nature will recognize it immediately. Uh, it's just that we represent a very small fraction of the people. So what's considered normal is the, is, is that other attitude of just like, what's the big deal? Just go over to her house for, you know, just stop by their place on the way to the show. It just takes 20 minutes. Like what's the big deal? You do the kid a favor, you make them feel good and then you get on with the, you get on with it. And it's like, yeah, no, I understand. Like I, I understand how easy it is. Um, but, but the, the cost of it to me, somebody suggested the other day that I had synesthesia and whatever, whatever sort of, um, complicated joy of cooking list of ingredients there, uh, there is in me, you know, like, so is that, is that where you, you taste something and it makes you see an image or you see an image and there's a taste or you hear a sound and it like that? Is that what yeah, that is? Yeah. And I think that, I think there are a lot of versions of synesthesia and, and I, and I wouldn't claim to have it, but definitely like my emotional life is intense. Right. And it's, and it's threaded through, like I experience emotions maybe connected to parts of my thinking that maybe other people don't have a, their emotions connected to like what? Well, I'm just, you know, just suggesting that like there are things that feel very threatening to me emotionally that aren't threatening. You know, people can identify a physical threat very easily, but what is an emotional threat exactly? Um, that you're going to feel bad. Somebody's going to make you feel bad or that you are going to feel really bad. Um, there are people out there and I think good politicians often are this type of people who don't like, they're very much like sticks and stones. They don't, um, you can stand right in their face and scream vitriol at them and they're just unaffected by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you talk to them, they're like, no, I'm not unaffected by it. I mean, that sucks when somebody does that. But you know what? They're just a crazy person and I need to get on with my day. Right. And, um, and it's like, well, yeah, but there are we, – we've seen now the tenor of the internet lately has shown us that there are people that are very, very sensitive, very, very delicate and vulnerable. And they can't even read Moby Dick without being sent into, you know, a state of, of crisis. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm somewhere, it, and it's strange to, it's strange to think about cause I'm big and I'm, 
I'm confident and I, you know, and I seem invulnerable in some ways. But, Very. But like emotionally, I'm much more, I perceive, um, and, and, and re, and I receive emotional threat much more strongly, I think, than, um, even than the threat of physical violence, I'm I'm less afraid that somebody is going to physically hurt me. But I'm you know very very aware of being of being um, psychically or psionically oh. injured. And I you know and I have friends that 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 make me look like a like a, a pillar of salt, you know that are that are so fragile. Do you have a story or a time that something like that happened that you could relate? It happens all the time. I mean, it's a constant, it's a constant friend. 15 years ago, I walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul and I was alone every day and I was walking. I mean, why, why not? Why not do that? Right. Of course. Well, I was 30 <laughs> and uh, didn't have a lot of other plans. Right. Take your time. And so all day long I would be out and I'd be walking, 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 walk through a field, walk over a fence, walk through a village, walk over a mountain, walk through a forest. And, and there's a lot to see, obviously, but really what, really what was happening was I was walking from one strange encounter with a, with a person to another strange encounter with a person. And sometimes I would go several days and have no encounters, but there was always another encounter with a person looming in the future because that's the whole, that was the whole, that's not what I thought it was. When I set out on the, on the long walk, I was like, I'm going to walk a long, long way and I'm at to, and, and I'm going to be away from people. That was a big part of the appeal. I'm going to be away from people. Right. I'm be out walking in my own space. And I was away from people. I was away from normal entanglements, but I was, you know, I, I, I came over time to desperately need people, not just because I needed food and shelter, but also because I was alone for months at a time. I needed some human contact. And then there was a ton and a ton of human contact that I did not want. Right. Not right. Need. And, you know, I would walk into some little pub in central Hungary and there would be seven guys sitting there drinking white wine and seven up in the middle of the day. <laughs> and I would walk in and I would unshoulder my backpack and right. set it in the corner and they would all kind of turn and look at me and I would busy myself in the, you know, uh, trying to uh, busy myself looking at a compass, which isn't, the compass doesn't. Like all you have to do is glance at it, right? <laughs> There's not a lot going on on it. No, it doesn't have a ton of information on it. You glance at it, you see which way it's pointing. You don't. It's not a thing you study, right? But I would do that, and then the waiter would come over, and I would say, you know, can I get a Seven Up? Hold the white wine, and he would, you know, come back and bring me a Seven Up and hold the white wine, and and the guys at the at the bar would be very curious about me, but they are. Farmers at a, you know, at a little shack 
on the Banat. <laughs> and I'm a weirdo with a backpack who doesn't speak Hungarian. And I would, you know, I would be there. I would want to be around people. Right. But, it doesn't like you're not, you refer to the hermit. I don't, I feel like you do enjoy human contact and being out in the world. You seem like you function very well in that kind of environment. But, but whatever the gap, whatever the gulf was between me and these, these guys standing at the bar, once I was in that space, that enclosed space, and there they were, and here I was. I could not bridge that gulf. And part of me would want one of them to come over and pull up a chair and say, hello, who are you? Why are you here? If they didn't, then I would sit there and sip my 7-Up and study my compass until it until my seven up was gone. And then I would put my backpack back on and I would leave. If someone came over and, and did broach that topic, right? I would, you know, I would readily engage with them, but you know, always on the lookout for, for them, you know, being too vampiric or, and what you know, would like, you do? What would you do when that happened? Like, how would you nip that in the bud? Well, the wonderful thing is that, that you know, I just walked into this place and I was, uh, and all I could do was walk out of it. Like every situation I had to, every situation I, I both had to, and also had the luxury of walking out. Um, and you know, and the and the the problem is that people use alcohol to uh, spackle the the holes, and I'm and I don't drink alcohol. So, in so many places, there would be a there would be a moment. Someone would come over. I would get into I would get into a a, a conversation or a social exchange with people. Mm-hmm. But then, as soon as the as soon as I wasn't willing to to break bread with them in the, in the shape of drinking alcohol. With them. Right. Right. Then the, then a veil came down or a curtain came down where it was just like, okay, this is going to be a half hour or 45 minute long exchange. And then we're going to go our separate ways because without the bonding of right, alcohol, right. There is, we're never going to get to a, to a different place. And that wasn't a thing I was on. I was always willing to go to a different place with people. Um, but most most people in that environment, you know, like it's already suspicious that you're there. It's all, I'm already suspicious looking, <laughs> and then the fact that I won't drink alcohol is the final suspicion. You know, that's the final suspiciousness. Like <laughs> they don't know what to make of you. No, there's something there's something profoundly uncomfortable about this person. But so I spent <laughs> you know I spent six and a half months on a daily and often hourly basis trying to figure out what I wanted from other people and what I could give them in return. And, um, and I never figured it out. I never figured out a comfortable, I mean, the last day, the, the, when I arrived in Istanbul, you know, I got a, 
I got a shitty hotel room and I went in and I laid down on the hotel bed and stared at the ceiling. And I was like, you got to go out. You got to go out and try and meet a, meet people, which I'd been saying to myself every every night for months. Like, you have to get out and go try and talk to other people a little bit at least. And I would, and I got myself up out of the bed and I wandered down into the, you know, I wandered around the streets of Istanbul and I met interesting people and some of them tried to rip me off and some of them tried to have sex with me and some of them tried to be my real friend just as just like a regular day, just as had happened every day for the last six months. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then I was like, you know, the next day I got on a plane and in fact, I forgot my compass in the hotel room. I, my, my <laughs> compass, which I had stared at and studied for thousands of hours. I left it in that hotel room. Uh, it must've been unconscious. Some like unconscious, right, like, like a sub- yeah. Farewell, you know, it's the thing. If I, if I had not forgotten it, it would have been elevated to like a holy, uh, some kind of like relic, right? A, a, a sh- the shin bone of, of John the Baptist or something. I would have yeah. this, I would have this uh, compass that I had, <laughs> I had d- devoted so much eye energy to right? that it was, that it had like the power of a thousand suns. Wow. But it's somewhere in Turkey right now. Well, you think unless there was like a person who was in the hotel room right after you and they found it and now they're like a listener of this show and they're mm-hmm. going to send it to you? Well, I think I think probably more likely that they were an Israeli tourist and that they left it <laughs> in Nepal. You're right. And now it's hanging uh it's hanging over somebody's like hearth. Right. Or like on the Nepal wall store. at a Friday's or something. Oh, maybe it's on the wall of a friend. Maybe it's somebody's little uh, somebody's flair. Uh, that's right. I don't know why. I don't know why I went so went, went so uh, down this this uh, this little rabbit hole. But, yeah. But uh, but yeah, the, the the tension between being somebody. I you know I love people's stories. I love other people. I love to hear their stories, and I love to talk to them about themselves. Um, and that's part of why, you know, that was part of my process of self-education, get people talking about themselves. And, and it turned out that it wasn't, some people use that as a ploy, right? Get people talking about themselves and then you can pick their pockets or you can, you know, sell them a car or whatever, but getting people talking about themselves is just such a joy for me. I love hearing, uh, other people's stories and it makes me seem very gregarious and and um people oriented right because then i retell those stories or you know or i think about my own stories in the in those contexts and you know it's like the, the it's the alphabet but um but it doesn't it doesn't mean that i want to hug exactly mm. i don't i don't really want a hug uh the way some people would forego the stories or the listening they would never listen to you you've been married to them for 11 years and they have never listened to you <laughs> but they want a hug desperately right and all the time and um 
So yeah, it's just, it's the, it's the, it's, it's like intersecting bell curves in four dimensions. Oh man. What about what about you, Dan Benjamin? Where do you? I mean, you are definitely a quirky <clears throat> individual with a lot of uh, with a lot of traits. Uh huh. But you're many very, traits, not enough affectations. I think. But you're very you're very personable. You talk to people professionally. Yeah. How would you describe yourself? What 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 do you do when somebody shows up on the porch with a pie? Yeah. Well. I I think I'm more. You want the pie? No, I don't. I really don't. I think I'm way more on your side of the of the camp in not wanting it, but for for different reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm very much aware, and I don't know if it's this is because of the way my mom was, or 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 what. I really don't know why. But I kind of grew up in this with this understanding that people will do things for other people. And a lot of the time you don't want it, but you got to just take it anyway. And I guess I just learned. Suck it up. Yeah. Like, don't feel so bad about that. And you know what? If they want to make you something and they want to go out of their way to make you something. I definitely feel like you have an obligation to to. I'm not saying I'm good at this, but I'm saying you have an obligation to thank them for it. Mm-hmm. in a way that will i guess be be measured against the amount of effort that they put into doing it so if you know if they drew you a little sketch on a little napkin and said i made this for you you oh man thanks it's really nice mm-hmm. versus a pie that would require a lot more thanking mm-hmm. versus like they you know built you a kit car that's even more work so you would now listen if somebody built me a kit car i might be willing to change my tune a little bit <laughs> but you know so i think i think it's it comes down to how great of a thing it is but i i think that i learned or maybe i just believe and maybe this is what i needed to believe or need to believe is that if somebody wants to do that for you you haven't asked them for it you didn't ask them for help they did this all of their own free will they made something for you and have given it to you. You thank them for it. You're obligated, I think, to do that. But they can't come back and expect something later. So I'm perfectly okay. The transaction for me ends after I thank them. Mm-hmm. I made you this pie. Wow, thank you so much. That was really nice of you. You didn't, you didn't have to do that. Well, I know I wanted to. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. Hey, you mm-hmm. never made me a pie. I made you that pie, Dan. I made you that. Well, yeah, I didn't ask you for the pie. So, right. and maybe this is because I'm like, I have this, maybe this is like a Northeastern thing. I don't know because I know that in, in people will say that Texas isn't the South. I agree. It is not the South, but I spent a lot of time in the South in Florida, which is uh, its own strange land. And North Carolina as well, which I think definitely qualifies as the South. And there is very much like, oh, we baked you some cookies. Oh, thank you so much. And then, here, oh, we brought over this basket of preserves that we made and canned ourselves for you. And then it almost <laughs> becomes like a competition of outnicing the other person. And that's very, that's a very stressful exchange for me. And so I let it, I let it die after they give me that, that thing. 
And if they want to walk away from it thinking like, wow, you know, I made, I made him that pie and he never, they never made us anything. Then I, I mean, I guess that could make me a bad neighbor. I don't, but you know, I, the fact is I'm not, I don't want the pie anyway. I'm not going to like it. I yeah. Have, well, it you makes know, you a bad Southerner. It makes me a very bad Southerner. And yeah, but my problem is I'm not, I'm very, and a pie is an especially good example because there's only one kind of pie that I could actually possibly like. And I promise you, no one's going to make me that one. God, what kind of pie is it? Now I got to know. I don't know if I want to talk about it. You tell me oh. what your part is. I'll tell you the pie. What is it? It's pecan pie. No, right? it's lime pie. No, I'll eat a pecan pie, but it's not my favorite. But, you know, the whole the whole point of it is I'm not going to like it. And even worse, I'm probably not going to be able to eat it because the gluten-free thing. Oh, right. So, it's see, so already, like, and, and I, that's always the worst thing. Someone go, oh, we made you these cookies from scratch. Like, great. They're going, you know, to the to the table in the common room in the office building I work in. You know, like, I'm not eating any of that. And my kids aren't going to eat any. Yeah. So, well, let me it, ask you this, a bummer. Uh, you've been uh, You've been making five-by-five five, uh, branded products for a long time now. Sure. Surely you have uh surely you have some five by <laughs> five super fans. We've got a couple, been, yeah. Who have been with you from the very beginning. They've watched every, or they've listened to every show. Yes. And they have passed the line uh even, you know, and 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 you're happy to have them pass the line from being fans to being friends of friends of the shows and then friends of you and supporters. And you've asked them for favors and you know, or, or maybe you haven't asked them for favors, but how do you navigate the, the blurring of fans that become part of your first of your enterprise and then of your social world? Mm. Like where, where, how do you allow for that or um or or accommodate it or emotionally i mean yeah no i know exactly what you mean because i think there are different kinds of you know i think we talked about this once i became a member of the devo fan club when i was 11 years old and i didn't get very much in return i think i signed up for it and i think they sent me like a little card or a paper that you could self-laminate something that i got it was something interesting as like a paper i can't remember i mean this was a long time ago but i do remember the feeling that what i got back wasn't whatever small amount i paid i still didn't feel like it was enough it's not like i was expecting like mark to like sit down at his you know with his you know his ink quill pen thing and like scribble me you know sketch something for me but I felt like I wanted a little bit more than I had gotten back. And you felt like the Devo fan club was a little bit of a ripoff, you're saying. A little bit of a ripoff. And you know, at I think now I would have a different perspective on it than I did back then. There was certainly something kind of cool to me only about saying I'm a member of the Devo fan club, you know, like that, that in and of itself, like I had to pay for the right to say that. So I was okay with that part of it, but I was ex maybe expecting a little more. And I feel like that's at the crux of the issue is that people who, uh, who, who are fans or super fans or people who donate 
that I could never possibly, even if they donate a dollar a month, that there's no way I could repay them for that donation. Even if they donate $1 for one month, I feel like I'm, I'm setting it up. The fact that we, they, people can donate, I'm already setting myself up to feel guilty and I'm already setting up myself up for failure uh, because I'll never be able to repay their, their kindness. And I get some people who will say, listen, you know, like I'm a supporter and I'm not, do- I'm just doing cause you guys are, you, you do great shows and we love the shows, whatever. I love that. I mean, that's ideal, but I still feel guilty. I still feel like somehow I'm letting them down constantly. And the emotion that that kind of brings up is, well, that makes me not want to like even go and do the shows anymore. I don't even want to do it anymore. Cause all I'm going to do is let people down. And then if, and then if we do a show, you asked me in one of the last episodes, I think it was number three, maybe number two. We've only done three episodes. I know it's so hard to, but they're long. They're very long. Yeah, they are. They're long. (laughs) You're telling me. (laughs) Somebody, I think emailed about this, but I, we were, you know, we were talking about how, you know, what happens when a show, it doesn't work for some reason. Uh, and, and I wind up not doing the show or taking a break from the show or putting it on hiatus or something like that. And you had asked like, well, how, how do you decide to do that and why? And so there was a show that I do that I have taken a little bit of a break from that I'm starting back up, but the summer kind of got crazy with my kids, both out of school and everything that was going on with, uh, with some, a couple other projects that I'm working on where I had to sort of take a break from a show and people they they miss you know if we if we stop doing the show i would hope that people would miss it i would hope that people would wonder what happened and and ask for it to come back i mean that's that would be really great if we were to do that and that's what people do but then i just i feel really terrible about it because it's like now people have invest they've invested in something they've invested in a yeah. show that they like or they've invested in a in a band that they like you know or or something like that you're letting people You're down. You're letting man. them down at all times, no matter what you do. You know, if, if, we, did a, if we did a show that if our normal show is two hours and we do a show that's an hour and a half because somebody emailed, a bunch of people emailed and, and said, your shows are too long. They're great, but they're just too long. And we said, all right, we'll cut it down a little bit. And we cut it down. To, then we'll get other emails from people who now they've been let down. Yeah, you're, you because, owe them a half an hour. Right. Like you've taken that half an hour from, they budgeted the number of, of episodes they were going to take on their camping trip to listen to on their drive or something. And that you've taken that from them. And it's not that I think people feel entitled or feel owed. And I think even the people who donate, you know, when I was listening to you talking about donating and giving and things like that, you know, there's this for, for a long time, I was very, very, very serious, very serious, too serious, perhaps of uh, like a like practicing buddhist and buddhist meditation Mm. and as i was listening to you talk about this that it reminded me of all these talks that i used to listen to about something called dana which is like donation it's like donating the practice of giving with absolute at the core of it is that you are going to be you're going to be making a gift giving a gift that you expect absolutely nothing in return from. And that's like the only true way to give a gift is, is giving a gift where you're, you're only doing it for the joy of giving that gift and that you 
truly in your deepest heart of hearts don't want anything back in return for. That's the only way that in theory you're even supposed to to make a donation to a Buddhist organization or to a temple or whatever. It's like if you're like, I'll give them this, but I really hope that, you know, like I get this thing. Like that no, you can't do it. Like they're right. very you hope that the Buddha comes down your chimney and <laughs> on uh, on Buddha Day and right. gives you like a PlayStation Two, or whatever. right, right. You can't, you can't have. It has to be completely free, freely given, and that's something that really is, especially in our culture, it is kind of a foreign concept in in many ways. You think a lot about giving something and and not wanting anything back. You know, even for the people who like donate to these shows, like I just, we, you know, I love the shows. Hope you keep making them. Well, they're now you want something back, <laughs> you know, that's that. And I'm not saying that this is bad. This is fine. Yeah. I mean, the donations make a big difference for us and it's, but they, there, there is that expectation. Oh, just, you know, I just want to donate to help you guys out. Cause I love the shows. Well, that's the expectation now is I've given you a dollar a month and that may not be a big enough donation for me to get a mug or a sticker or whatever. Listen, it's not enough to get a mug. So Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah, right. Well, hey, you, you're you, right. You understand what I'm saying. And it's a very, it's a very, I feel every, sing, every single day, I'm feeling guilty about it. I'm not exaggerating every day. I, I feel like, Dan, you and I should, part of our journey, part of our <laughs> personal journey should be together. That, together. Okay. You and I figure out a way to accept people's love. And in particular, accept people's love in the form of money. Yeah. <laughs> Where we do not feel guilty about it, and we just we live in the light, we accept the love. Uh, we just have to figure this out because because I, I have never really pursued a Buddhist practice. Uh-huh. You uh, would or, do very well with Buddhism, I think. Well, you know, I practice a kind of <laughs> amateur Buddhism, okay, which is not uh, in any way connected to Buddha, but. I feel like the principles of Buddhism, like the principles of most religions, are what you discover when you when you um, go to extremes. And I have, I have gone to extremes. I routinely go to extremes. Yeah. And when I come back, I often find that I am holding some tenant that then someone else identifies as also a Buddhist tenant. Right. And I go, oh, interesting. Um, I see where Siddhartha went to extremes and came back with this premise. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't go to such extremes. I did not, I did not sit and um, sit with my food bowl under a tree for how, a thousand years. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's been a long time since I read this. <laughs> it was probably a thousand years. No. A year? Ten years? Forty years. <laughs> Forty years would be pretty impressive. I'm going to have to go back and, and, uh, and study up. But you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. The, uh, the desire to silence the mind is a thing that if you don't, if you have never experienced a desire to silence the mind, then you have not gone to extremes. Right. <clears throat> but I do, I do, 
I do feel like the great mysteries for me are um, gratitude, other people, how, how to, how to find your place. You know how how does one find one's place? And I feel like I have left a trail of tears uh, throughout the throughout my whole life that is primarily a uh, a result of me f- like failing to give as opposed to actually create you know actually like physically damaging people or or being um you know whatever whatever cruelty I commit against people it's normally a cruelty of absence and that's heavy it's, duty. It's no less cruel. Right? And and that is um and that's the that is my struggle because I always felt like absence was kinder. Certainly kinder than violence, but also kinder than um kinder than the the dangerous fallout from complication and you know you get in there and you get blood on your hands and you get and you're entangled with somebody and you're all glued together with sweat and semen and and shared bank account and and glitter and what burning man dust whatever it is that is that coats people and it was like that just all seems so fraught with with explosive mm. danger that absence is more generous um but you know for for so many people it's like the it's the supreme unkindness yeah and so, you know, I am, I am wrestling that mountain lion every hour of my life. And, you know, and I seem calm and I'm sitting in a Tully's eating a <laughs> chocolate croissant that tastes like a, a flower covered catcher's mitt. But what I'm really doing is wrestling a mountain lion of um solitude and it's uh it's not like resolved it's still not resolved it's still not so i I, you know it just feels like every morning i wake up and there's this fucking lion there and he's you know the thing is he's not a he's not a an african lion he's a lion that's about my size much more, much more powerful, right? A lion, a mountain lion has claws. It's very muscular animal. It's not even a lion my size. I, I am, I outweigh the fucking lion, (laughs) right? But like a 90 pound mountain lion is a, is a big fucking cat. I might be twice the size of this lion, but it's still a formidable adversary. And I got to be on guard. It's trying to eviscerate me with its hind claws and also bite the back of my neck with its taunt with its big fangs. 
And you like people. I love them. They're amazing. They're hilarious. I never met. I, I'm, I'm the fucking Will Rogers of, of Indie Rock. <laughs> I honestly <laughs> almost never met a person I didn't like. There's a few people that I just don't like. But for the most part, I like them all. The, even the worst. Even the worst people. I, 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 they're pretty likable. You seem, having met you in person, I think you really do seem, even though you're intimidating, you're also very, seem very approachable. And there's something that's very kind about you. Seems like as a person. Well, that's, yeah. I, I want to think I'm kind. I mean, that's the. Or is it that you just seem kind and you're really, you're really not? No, no. I think it's the other way. I think I seem I seem much less kind than I am. Have you ever made a pie for someone without them asking or done something? And I'm not, your kid, your kid doesn't count. You know, a woman you're trying to date doesn't count. I mean, like a, a, a friend, an acquaintance, a stranger. Have you ever done something along those lines, given something to someone paid for their lunch ahead of them in line, even though they were a stranger, like, Oh, you know, I'll get this person's lunch. Or, you know, done something like that? Have you ever done anything like that that jumps out at you? I mean, it's the it's the thing. It's one of the defining characteristics of me, but that it that that I I try to always be invisible. You know that the that. And meanwhile, you're usually the the most visible person in the room. But that but the, the that the kindness be invisible. Ah. Um. That that um, you know that I notice that the that the light bulb in your landing is burned out, and I change it and take great pleasure in not just that you don't know it was me, but that you never notice. Wow, um, that's a very Buddhist thing to do. Well, that's just look at like, you. That's just that feeling of. You know, it's exactly the same impulse when you when you find a a dime on the ground and it's and it's tails up. Yeah. And you flip it uh to heads and leave it. Like it's bad. Like, yeah, yeah, you're taking the badness away. That's right. You take you take away the badness and leave the coin and the person that comes along and finds the quarter or whatever does not realize that anyone has interacted with it. They think, "Ah, lucky quarter." And look, it's heads up. Um, and that creating luck for other people is one of the great, one of the great pleasures for me. It's not a thing that I would meant uh, that I would, that I ever talk about even to my friends because it's a private joy and it's just that you just leaped upon it that I can even describe it, but like creating magic um, in the world is so easy and it's and and it requires that you never take credit for it right and it requires that you never it's a form of of uh, anonymous donation but right like, to to see and it requires that you also see 
survey and see what what's broken and what needs help and what where magic is possible and so much of that is like walking along and you see somebody coming and you see an obstacle in their way that they don't see and get that obstacle remove that obstacle in a way that they are ne- that they never perceive and don't ever even register you that's like one of the great ways to like play the violin hmm. in the world. So, but you know, I have to say there is a little bit of a practical joke in doing something like that with, with the light bulb. If they did notice it, there's a huge potential for that. Yeah. And I, and I do that a lot. There's another version of that, which is like you're standing on the sidewalk and somebody, you know, you're waiting for the light to change and somebody is standing across the street from you and you see that they see you. Right. And you see them. And then all of a sudden, a bus, it comes in between you. There's a, you know, a bus is moving down the street and you're looking at somebody across the street and they're looking at you. And then all of a sudden this bus or this truck intervenes <laughs> in between you. And in the space of the two seconds that it takes that truck to go, like I often will leap in the direction of the traveling vehicle and sprint so that when, when the, the truck has passed from the person across the street's perspective. I vanished. You have vanished. And were you ever even there? Was I ever even there? And (laughs) I do, I do that type of thing often at great inconvenience right now. I'm now I I'm not only am I running for no reason. You've really done this. I do it. I do it and other (laughs) tricks like it. All the time. So now I'm all the way down the street or, you know, then you have to duck into a place or something and then you have to hide and then you're late for what you were going to in order to create that moment of, because, you know, I'm, if you notice me on the street, I'm pretty noticeable to notice me then. Especially with your like vest and monocle and everything. Yeah. Right. Purple top hat uh, uh, to then see me disappear. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. And, you know, and like I've, then I'll go hide somewhere and I will watch this person like spend the next couple of minutes just playing it cool. Right. Nobody else saw <laughs> it. It was for that one person only. Right. And they're playing it cool, walking down the street, just kind of looking around like, where the fuck did that? Play? Because, <laughs> because, you know, it, right before the truck comes, I'm just the picture of calm waiting for the light to die. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and there, there's a handful of those. I won't give them all away, but like, you know, that are just small bits of magic to, to, I never learned actual close up magic. So I don't have the ability to give people that joy of just sort of making cards disappear and stuff. But, but the practical joking <laughs> aspect where where actually the impulse is is to give a to give like I mean I hate to sound like fucking Jerry Lewis like a, <laughs> like 
like a clown or something <laughs> like it's it's to put a smile on a kid's face but there are lots of opportunities to do that stuff and most of, mostly it's surprise it's just the like you can surprise um people in a pleasant way that's yeah um that's at, at some point in some ways it's like the impulse to to build a kyarn um i mean the first time you come to the top of a mountain and you see a kyarn you're like what the fuck is that yeah how long has that been there and the chances are it's only been there for a week or for an hour but but it's um i don't know i mean i i'm not going to I'm not going to give away my secrets. No, yeah, I was going to say you might have said too much already. Well, if somebody sees me disappear behind a truck now, they're going to know what the fuck it happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'll be running down the street after you. But the, but there there aren't that many people listening to our podcast relative to the number of people that I'm potentially going to see on the street and Is this some I have to ask you is this something you do a lot like is this a daily occurrence? Is it No. No, it's That's the other thing. You can't set it up. It has to, you have to just be honestly waiting on a street corner, notice someone has noticed you, and then the fortuited, right. the fortuitiveness of like a passing truck. I mean, what does it have? No, it has to be, it's just like life occurring spontaneously on, on, on a planet. It has to be everything just right. Yeah, it's happened a few, a handful of times in 25 years since I... <laughs> Since I did it the first time. Right. But it's always on your mind, it sounds like. Well, no, it's just, it's, 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 it's in a quiver of, of potential, like, um, events mm -hmm. when, when it all happens, you know, cause, cause the thing is when you're, you're standing on a street corner and you see somebody across the street and you notice that they see you. And then you hear the rumble of a truck. And you look, and you see the rumbling truck, and you're like, "I have one and a half seconds to decide if I'm going to do this." And and then I have to execute fully. Yeah, because if they look and they and you're and you don't you're not running as fast as the truck and they see you just running down the street They They think nothing of it. Oh, that guy must've forgotten his wallet. Or... <laughs> yeah. Like if they see, if they catch you in the act of disappearing, it's not as good. No, you have to just be gone. And, and in a way that is inexplicable. Yeah. Lo lo lots of, lots of similar similar pranks and, 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 and changing the light bulb or, um, I mean that, that type of thing, the, like a, a lot of it is how, how often do you show up somewhere where there's, where you notice a burned out light bulb and right. you need to go and you, and you have the opportunity to go find a light bulb. That's not very often. No, either. never. But to be primed for that, to find a set of keys on the ground and not, just leave them or take them into the nearest shop, but to, to notice them, to figure out what kind of car they're from, and then to search the neighborhood for that car. Mm. 
and find the car and then first not steal it, which is the first, that's the first decision you have to make. (laughs) Am I going to steal this car? I mean, I've gone, I've gone pretty far down that chain of events. Um, finding a set of keys on the ground. Did you, were you able to place it with the owner of the car? I was able to place the keys with the owner of the car. But after a, after a long set of high hijinks, hijinks ensued. But that, so that's a, I mean, there, there's so much joy in life. with just sort of waiting for the opportunity to like, you have to make a little bit of investment, but you know, you bring laughs to people or, or, um, you know, mystery or, or whatever. I'll tell you something you can do. that takes a little bit less, uh, less effort, but still, you know, can brighten someone's day. Mm-hmm. Fart in an elevator. Well, no, it's, not quite. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you call someone, you're talking to them, and it, especially if if they have to go, it's even better if they're like, oh, I, I got to go, I got to do the thing. But it, even if that's not the case, that's fine. You're having a nice phone conversation. When you feel like you're done with the call, which is usually before the other person is ready to be done, you say, oh, John, listen, there was one more thing I wanted to tell you. It's actually kind of important. I can't believe I forgot. And they'll say, what? And then you hang up. <laughs> oh hey by the way i just i need i really needed to click yep i really gotta tell you something that's really important and then that what and then so it had fun. they have to respond though they have to say what or else it's it sounds like you just got disconnected and then they'll wonder was he playing a game oh that john playing his or was there really something important that i want to hear and then the question is, do they then call you back? If they call you back, do not answer. No, of course you wouldn't no. answer. And if they text you, you've got to wait at least a couple hours. And 14 days. 14 days. <laughs> 14 days. That's as long as the Buddha was under the uh, – and so then they'll uh, – they, if they do text you or call you later and call you out on you, you say, I can't, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> Boy, it must have – Yeah. must not have been that important. Right. So, uh, well, listen, we have some actual, remember how in the last, uh, in the last call that we had together, the last show, you said you wanted questions that were actually topics that, that things you could answer. Oh yeah. Questions. And so we've got a handful of those questions. I would like to, yes. And I would like very much to read a few of them to you. Some of them I have forwarded to you so that you can have a little bit of time to prepare and other ones, um, <laughs> never do that. No, yeah, I don't read my email first of all, but uh, second of all, like I don't need to. I don't need to prepare during the campaign. You read every email. Uh, I tried to read every email. Yeah, yeah. now sort of a That's hiatus a from. Yeah, yeah, just delete, then, delete, delete, delete. And there are people who are emailing you. They have expectations. They <laughs> feel left out, left out, and you feel guilty. Right. But before we do it, let me do our sponsor, uh, Wellfront which we've told you about before, we'll tell you we about have. them today. They're a fantastic uh, company. They're a low-cost automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. They work 24-7 to manage your portfolio. They diversify it for you. They customize it to your risk profile. 
That's based on this little form that you fill out when you start. It's very easy and it takes like five minutes, but that tells them what you are comfortable with and how you would like to invest. And uh, they do tons of really great things. They keep your tax bill low. They don't charge commissions. And whether you've got tons of money or whether you're just starting out, they're the most sophisticated way to invest your money out there. And, uh, and you know what? They always say do the long-term investment. Don't worry if the stock market takes a little dip. Keep it in there. It'll come back. Well, this is, this is a wonderful way to do that. A lot of people don't want to sit there and monitor and manage. And to be honest, a lot of us are not qualified to make really smart investment decisions. We want other people or other intelligent systems to do that. And that's exactly how Wealthfront works. It's totally transparent and accessible. You can see all of your accounts in one place, whether they're personal accounts, joint retirement. You can see every trade that Wealthfront makes on your behalf in your dashboard, anywhere you go, your desktop or in your pocket with their mobile app. They've thought of everything and you get access to all these really advanced tools and these things just happen. Like you don't need to know about them, but they've got like tax loss harvesting, direct indexing, all of this stuff that I don't even know what it is, but like it, it, it improves your after-tax returns. It lowers your tax bill. All of this is good. It's all good. And they have a special URL for listeners of this show. It's Wealthfront dot com slash five by five wealthfront.com slash five by five so if you go there just going there supports the show but if you go there and sign up your first fifteen thousand dollars will be managed entirely free of charge for life so uh it's a wonderful way to to save some cash and that's on top of the fact that there you don't pay any commissions and there's no hidden fees and all that nonsense so go to wealthfront.com slash five by five thanks very much to them for supporting the show And now for compliance purposes, I have to tell you that Wealthfront is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation. And they said I could say it, FINRA, member of FINRA and SIPC. Yeah, FINRA. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks. Possibility of losing money exists. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. Thanks very much to them for supporting the show. And now some listener feedback for John. I do. I do feel like on the wealth front uh, uh, topic, mm. it behooves everyone, yes, to learn about money. Yes, right. It, we should all know more about money, even though money is fake. We should educate ourselves about it. And it's very hard for people there. We don't take home economics anymore. Nobody learns to balance their checkbook, let alone right how to manage their money. And uh, it's not, it's not a skill that's taught even in the most basic sense anymore. Yeah. It seems, it seems like a thing that um, the, 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 the less you know about it and the more you just sort of sign up for Amazon prime or whatever and, and, and Apple care and, and uh, Google plus double plus good right <laughs> which which doesn't cost money but it does cost something uh and the less you know you know the more you just uh, you just let direct withdrawals take care of your expenses the yeah. you know the the less your fingerprints are on your money as it comes and goes you know the more vulnerable you are and i feel like uh these services this uh, this uh, this da- data service that uh, Wealthfront is providing is a good opportunity to do some self-education. Right. 
watch stuff move around and, and figure out what it means. And, you know, the stock market is a, is a, a harsh pit. mistress. It is. It's a pit of viper, <laughs> but knowledge is power. Yeah. That's all I'll say. That's knowledge all you need to say. That's all you need to say. Yeah. Our first email. Let's see. I'll pick this one. He does not say, let's see if he says we can say it. Okay. We'll just call him Steven. Okay, Stephen. Stephen, dear sirs, I do pose this question to you in the hope that it will be discussed on your excellent show. Mr. Roderick, recently you have enumerated upon the need for infrastructure building and looking at what our grandchildren will need when they become adults. I would be interested to hear what you and Mr. Benjamin think is the most pressing infrastructure need for the world. And he is writing to us from uh, Sydney, Australia. Stephen in Sydney. Yes, the old, good old Stephen in Sydney. Yeah. The most pressing infrastructure need. In, in for, for the world. For the world. For the world. You know, I think, uh, well, I think like all infrastructure is interconnected. So you can't really divorce one thing from another. Um, but I think going forward, it seems like the next problem we need to solve is fresh water everywhere. We need more fresh water. And our prehistoric plan to just gather it as it falls from the sky or runs down from the mountains isn't sufficient anymore. Particularly, I mean, here in Western Washington, we've always gotten away with murder because we have abundant water. But then this past winter, it never snowed. And we realized that all of our water comes from winter snow. And it's stored up there in, a, in, the, in the bank of the mountains. And, it, and the mountains release that water slowly over the spring and summer. Well... It didn't happen this time. And, mm. and every, you know, we've always been pretty smug about the amount of water we had relative to the desert Southwest. But, you know, uh, three more winters with no snow, and we'd be up a creek just like everybody else, literally up a creek. Uh -huh. So I feel like Australia is actually one of the pioneers of desalination technology. Yeah. Australia has been collecting seawater and taking the salt out of it for a while. And now in Israel, they have, uh, they have finally built a, a plant where it is, it seems like the, 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 the cost is coming down. Uh, the the cost is the cost of taking salt out of water is coming down because the price of because electricity generation is becoming cheaper. Solar power is starting to be a real force in in electricity. So we need to need to pioneer clean electricity in order to have a, have cheap uh, desalination plants to provide fresh water for everyone. And if the, and if we are able to do that effectively, um, I think we'll find that a lot of 
a lot of the political problems, regional political strife is already water-based, let alone like what it's going to be if we don't kind of, if we don't get, get at this now, you know, that what, why does nobody live in the Sinai? Right. The Sinai is a giant, uh, peninsula right in the heart of, of the matter. It's, it's, it's a, um, it's like in the center of the world in some ways, but nobody lives there because you can't, you can't live there. There's no, there's no water. But if you had some big desalination plants and you're, you could turn the Sinai into an oasis, terraforming it. Wow. Call it the new Palestine. Mm. Make it a, make it a, uh, a desert garden. I don't know. That's what I think. What do you think? Well, I mean, obviously you've answered the question in perfect way. I don't know how much I could really add to that. I think power and water are the two. And, and I think that relationship, those two things can't be separated, right? Power and water, man. Power and water. Power and water. Because when you, when you think about water's importance, here we are surrounded by it. And yet the efforts to take the water that we have and use it effectively. I remember these commercials when I was a kid, like, don't leave the water running while you brush your teeth. Uh-huh. And I'm like, why not? Like, there's, there isn't always water. There's always going to be water. Like, why should I have to worry about that? I've got a bottle of water here. You know, I drank half that bottle over there. I'm going to just dump it out. <laughs> you know, and I mean, that's very much. Just pour it on your shoes. Right. There's that great scene in the Three Amigos when they're, you know, when they're in the desert. And uh, I forget which one. I think it's, you know, Martin Short has empties his opens his canteen up there riding through the desert on horses he opens his canteen he pour, he pours the water into and just one little drop goes into his mouth and steve martin opens up the canteen and gets ready to dump the water into his mouth and it's just sand that goes into his mouth and then it cuts to chevy chase chevy opens his canteen and he has apparently in the canteen an endless supply of water which he's not only drinking but he's using to rinse his mouth out Ugh. and and squirt the water out of his mouth and all oh, that Chevy Chase and then throws the canteen onto the ground discarding it and you see water just pouring out of it on the ground that's sort of the american philosophy of water and still mm-hmm. still to this day so i think i i'm i'm going to i'm going to go with uh, answer a from contestant number 1 and and just agree Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good. That's a general. That's a good general policy. Yeah. Just, just uh, I've done a little research here. Uh, the Sinai Peninsula is twenty three thousand square miles. Wow. And it has a population of one and a half million people. Israel, by comparison, is only eight thousand square miles, <laughs> with a population of nine million people. Wow. Land it's of the green about, minerals. It's all about the water. Yeah. All right, next question. Next question. Here we go. Hello. Hello. You asked for listener questions, and I have one. Great. This is from, uh, from Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Which seems more ridiculous? 
the idea that life is random and finite, as in when you die, that's it, or the alternative that it isn't. I'm struggling right now because both seem absurd and both seem plausible to me personally. Thank you for being there and for all you do. Hmm. Wow. Well, the idea that life is finite is not very ridiculous is the, is the answer to the question because all around us, life is finite. You know, nature doesn't, there is no sentimentality to it. And we, we have spent so many centuries trying to draw a line somewhere in the continuity of life where we say, well, sure, plants die all the time and bugs die and mice die Mm -hmm. and nobody cares. There's no mouse heaven. (laughs) Uh, Nobody weeps for the, for the plants, for the, for the dandelions. Nobody Uh weeps for the dandelions, but somewhere in there between mice and cats, all of a sudden, Oh shit. When the cat dies, Oh no, that can't be the end. That cat has to go to cat heaven, right? Because I loved that cat. Yeah. I loved that cat. It can't just die. And when a giant tree dies, Oh, we mourn, we rend our garments and wail. But that that line between mouse and cat or between dandelion and redwood is just a just a line that it's just a a fake distinction because emotionally it's it's hard for us to as things get closer to us, mm-hmm. it's hard. It's harder and harder for us to imagine that the that the same rules apply. But of course, the same rules apply to dandelions as to redwoods and to mice as to humans. And why there should be why there should be a human heaven and not a mouse heaven, I don't know. No one's explained. And why there should be a why we should mourn a a redwood and not a dandelion. It's just because, because our fourth dimension is all, that's all we perceive, right? Or we don't, we don't see our fourth dimension, but, you know, the, from even the standpoint of a redwood, how many mice have died at the feet of any typical redwood? Yeah. 10,000, 100,000? Redwood doesn't care. So I don't think it is, I don't think it's ridiculous to think that life is finite uh, and that's, um, life is finite and that, and that everything that accompanies our sense of justice is a human invention. And that doesn't make it fake or wrong, but it is a, um, it's a thought technology and not really something baked in because the world itself is, is completely unsentimental and doesn't have a sense of, of right and wrong even. Um, and that's the hardest thing is to, is to understand that we've invented that 
and it's and it serves us and maybe we've pulled something some grand maybe we've pulled a a, a golden rule out of math somehow or a proportional a Leonardo da Vinci drawing mm-hmm. down out of out of universal principles and we've extrapolated from it but um but it, but that it is an extrapolation and not a uh, I don't think some kind of um a priori system do you do you yourself believe that this is like a one time deal one shot deal yeah yeah uh, yeah i mean i don't other than wishful thinking i cannot think of any other evidence any any other reason to suspect that it's otherwise other than just wishful thinking and even wishful thinking it seems like when you really put your mind to it if somebody came to you and said i will let you live for a thousand years and when you really think about how exhausting it is to live Ugh. and how long it is really i mean it's short lives are so short they're like bullshit short but in actual practice of living them oh they're interminable they're so long and exhausting with with relatively few clear rewards there's some there's some good times there's some days at the beach there's strawberry ice cream don't get me <laughs> wrong i'm not a monster <laughs> There's plenty of nice things, soft kisses, full moons, but really an awful lot of just dragging your carcass across the baked sand. Yeah. Would you want to live for a thousand years? Me personally? Yeah. Would you want to live for a thousand years? I don't know. The last 42 have been been a lot of work. Yeah, there are a lot of work. Yeah. A thousand, now a thousand of them. Or, or I mean, I think what people love is the idea of like. I'd like a really, really healthy hundred years. A healthy hundred. Yeah. Or I think, I think a really good one would be three forties. You live to be 40, you die, but then are immediately reincarnated. And live for another 40. But you would want to go through like grade school again? God. Okay. Or here's, oh, here's a good one. You live to be 50 and then go back to 20 and live between 20 and 50 three times. That wouldn't be as bad. That would be killer, actually. It's just, you get would to you have memories, 50, though, from leading up to, up to the, from zero to 20? Would you have? That, that would be ideal. Would they be the same memories each time you do it? Or would you be a whole different like life? I feel like it's one continuous life. You get to be 50, boom, back to 20. Nobody else knows. <laughs> they have a funeral for your 50-year-old self, but you have re-inhabited some 20-year-old Oh. Self. But you remember everything. And then you live to be 50 in that body. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, again, one more time. And I think, I don't know, if you could do that, you might want to live forever. That might not be so bad. Hard to say. 
I mean, and I feel like that's when you talk about, I mean, that's the reincarnation gig that everybody, um, that, that believes that including some people in my own family. Uh, I think that that's what they're, they believe that they're ascending, 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 but like eternity in heaven, no one ever explicates what exactly your day looks like up there. What is he- What is it? You're getting, you're getting massages all day. <laughs> Are, is it like you're, you're It's the first day of seventh grade and you're on roller skates and, and Blondie's heart of glass is playing. <laughs> Or is it, are you just in a warm bath? Like, it doesn't sound very cool. Any description of it. And that's, that's the thing. Nobody describes heaven. What, heaven is just offered as an alternative to hell. Mm-hmm. And people spend a lot of time describing hell. So all we know about heaven is that it is not hell. But we spend all of our time thinking about hell. And I mean, heaven just doesn't, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about heaven and I can't come up with anything that would be even remotely worth eternity. That just sounds like another kind of hell. But I know that we all want to have meaning attached to everything and it's all going to mean something because that's the human yeah, we try to assemble things into patterns and we try to find meaning in those patterns. Yeah, that's the human game. It's a very normal thing. I think like space travel is very important. And podcasting. Yes. The two pinnacles of human achievement. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. Space travel and podcast. I'm so with you. So in answer to your question, Jamie, it was Jamie, right? Yes. I think that you should start a podcast. Mm-hmm. And that way you will live forever. And then you can, you can let your body just die unsentimentally like a dandelion, <laughs> and um, and yet, yet your you know your words will ring out, and somewhere in the future, George Carlin and Clarence Clemens will sit on a giant dais and make some weird hand gesture in in. Um, homage to you and your, right, right. your life. It's deep stuff. Mm. See, I, one thing I would like to add, since we've been all Buddhisty today, is that many people know that Buddhists believe in, if you will, reincarnation, but it's not seen as a good thing. Back to your <laughs> thousand years. Buddhist, Burn! Buddhist, Buddhists don't want to be born reborn they're trying the whole point of buddhism is to stop is to get to the end yes to make it stop because (laughs) there's a lot of suffering in being being alive and that doesn't mean there's not a lot of uh there's not a lot of good things too but the theory in buddhism is that by the time that you're even just a human being you've been reborn thousands if not hundreds of thousands of times as every variety of creature in the universe until you work your way up to finally becoming a human. And I always get this quote wrong, but they say there's a saying that the chance of 
finally being lucky enough to be born. And the reason I say lucky enough is human beings are maybe the only being that has the potential to attain enlightenment, which is well, the Buddhist way of saying, you know, we always imagine enlightenment is like this amazing God-like state, but it really just means like you're not going to be born again anymore. You get to stop samsara, this, this cycle of rebirth. You get to stop then. And that's what the Buddhists are working toward. And the chance of being born as a human with that potential, because other beings don't have that potential, your, your dog does not have that potential, is the same, equal to the chance of a sea turtle swimming in the middle of the ocean, coming up to the surface to take a breath, and having its head poke through the hole in a piece of driftwood. That that's the equal chance of that just happening randomly in the world. That's how likely a, a being is to be born as a human being. So like the whole goal in the Buddhist mindset is that we, we want to stop this cycle of samsara, of rebirth and death. And, and, and it is the karma that we create. People think of karma as like an eye for an eye, and it's not, it's not quite that simple. That's sort of the westernized version, right? And it, it's, it's more about every action has an effect. There is cause and there is effect. And that exists on the purely physical level, but it also exists in, a, in this kind of Maybe I guess you could call it like an energy level. And the goal is to not create you can if you're if you're like a really awesome Buddhist, like you're the best Buddhist ever, you're going to be maybe only creating good karma, not making any bad karma. That would be really good. But that's still bad. Your goal is to not make any karma at all. Make zero karma. Right. To have all of your actions create no karma good or bad and and you talked about being invisible emotionally invisible that's that's like the pinnacle so you're saying walk across the rice paper and without making no any trace yeah and uh and so that's that's kind of that but i was thinking about that while you were talking answering that last last question is that you know you even if it if i believe anything i believe more along the lines of the buddhist thing and uh, and the goal would be to get out of that. Like you're not you're not. Re- it's not like uh, John goes and gets reborn, and now John is like this other person. It's more like the the karma that you have set in motion. That existence of that karma is what creates that next life. So it's not you and your consciousness per se as much as the effects of the things that you have done in this life that leads to that next uh, rebirth. And there's another weird analogy I'm trying to remember where they say if you were to take a stack of of dice or die dice Mm -hmm. and stack the dice up on top of it, if you built a tower of dice, I think I'm getting this wrong, (laughs) that – the, Isn't the, this an REM lyric? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Built a tower of dice that you put that 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 one you can stack them on top of each other, but that the one that you're stacking on top of the other one can only be stacked because there's one below it, but they are not the same. Anyway, I messed it up. But right, there you it's go. tortoises all the way. Down. All the way. Down. 
But I think we call it a day. We have more feedback, but we will we will save it for next week. And if you would like to send John and I an email, you can go to 5by5.tv slash contact and you'll see Roadwork listed there. Click the link, type the email, send it to us and let us know if it's okay to, if you just want to say something to us privately, if it's okay to read it because I think I'll assume that it's okay to read it. That's a good assumption. You know, if you don't say don't read it or don't use my name, then I, I will say... This is Jamie. And yeah, I, I think if we if we get enough uh, if we get enough questions, we can have a you know we can have it be a larger portion of the. I would like that. The program that'd be fun. Do you want people to follow you on Instagram? I counted while you were talking at the top of the show. I counted. You posted including the uh, including the photo of your face, mm-hmm. which was a re- what I would call a reaction photo. Mm-hmm. I think I counted 26 photos from the junkyard. That's right. Just just clogging up dudes from Texas's feed. <laughs> That's right. Clogging the feeds. Yeah. Years years ago, early early on in my time on Twitter, I went on a, a screed against Firestone because I went to a Firestone dealership and the manager was rude. He was a, a real rude twat. Why? It's just lame. They just mm. did a shitty job fixing my car. And then they did it, you know, like three, four different times. They uh, failed to address the problem. And then, um, you know, finally had to get me a rental car. And then at 5.59 p.m. called me and said, we fixed your car. It's ready for pickup. And I didn't get the message at 5.59 because I was in the recording studio. And so I came by the next day to get the car. And they said, well, we called you yesterday, so we aren't going to pay for your rental car for, mm. for the extra day. I was like, you didn't call me. You called me in the middle of the afternoon yesterday. I was at work. <laughs> and they were like, well, no, you know, you didn't come by after work. And I was like, I'm a musician. I, I, I was at work from 3 right. p.m. to 3 a.m. Who's, who's, they get to set your hours now, too? Yeah. And they were like, well, we're not paying for your extra day. And then I got in the car, started it up, drove three feet, and realized yeah. that, uh, that like the steering just went clunk or something. Uh. Like, so they hadn't refastened it or whatever. And so I went back in, and I was like mad. Yeah. And I said, you know, I've, this, the car has been here for four days now such that you needed to rent me a car and then you tried to nickel and dime me on the car. And now my car still isn't fixed. This is the fourth time I've been here. Like you have got to be shitting me. You're a very patient person. And the guy behind the counter, the manager said, sir, if you are going to use profanity, then we are, you know, then I am not going to entertain your complaint or whatever. And I said, Oh my God, are you, are you seriously going to read from the Firestone assistant manager script that came in your three ring binder about what to do with an irate customer? Because I said, you have got to be shitting me. That is the, now you're going to, now you're going to go into binder control. And I was like, 
I will burn your Firestone to the ground. Oh, my God. And I will do it in a brand new way, which had never been. And, you know, and I ended up leaving without paying or whatever. But in, in a brand new way, which was that I tweet, I tweeted tweet storm. Mm. And I had never done it before. And I'd never seen anybody do it before. And I'm not suggesting that I invented it. But it was early on in Twitter times. And I was just like, you know what? I hate Firestone. Send. Here's why. Because Firestone, blankety blank. And I just, I started tweeting about Firestone. And then I got, I, then I was happy. Because I had that first flush of feeling that I was doing something. Oh, right, right. And I sent out, you know, 10 tweets or whatever. And I started to get replies from people like, dude, why are you clogging my feed? And that just made me happier. That there were people out there who were mad that their free Twitter account uh, required that they scroll or something. And, you know, like it was, it was early enough times that I don't, I, I've never understood the like clog my feed problem. Like it's so easy to just, if you, when you realize like, oh, this person's going to be tweeting about the book of revelation for the next, uh, for the next two hours, either I unfollow them or I scroll. So then I was antagonizing people, which is its own joy. And I, I tweet stormed about Firestone for a couple of hours. Wow. And of course, Firestone got involved and some customer service person. It was the first exchange like that I'd ever had where a customer service representative was trying to fix the problem, but they didn't have a dedicated Twitter person. It was just that, Someone alerted them to it, and someone from Firestone was like, hello, I am from Firestone. Can I help resolve this problem? And I was like, you can help by closing your Aurora Boulevard store, firing the manager, <laughs> salting the earth, sending everyone there into exile. And they were just like, I don't have the power to do that. I'm just an intern. So over, <laughs> over the years, I've gotten a lot of joy. Most famously, I think I went to war with the Hilton hotel chain uh, because of an experience I had at their Alexandria, Virginia location, the Crystal City Hilton. Um, I tweet stormed about them a few years ago, and that was one of the, that was one of the greatest days of my life. Um, they were actually pounding on the door. Really? That, yeah, that, that's all out there. Somebody storified that one. That was a good time. <laughs> but so every once in a while, yeah, you do a little tweet storm. And now that I've got Instagram, you know, you got an Instagram storm. It's pretty fun. So, yeah, I highly recommend, first of all, that everybody that's listening to this program follow me on all those social media channels because, oh, the, the times we have. Three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Tweeting at each other. Just don't bring me a pie. <laughs>